0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu.
1: Hi, my name is Ivana Andrade. I'm a research assistant here at the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. Today, I'm in the studio with Christine Klein and Sandra Zellmer. Christine is the Chesterfield Smith Professor of Law and a Research Foundation Professor at the University of Florida Levin College of Law. Her work focuses on natural resources law, water law, and property law. Sandra Zellmer is the Robert Doherty Professor at the University of Nebraska Law College. She teaches and writes about natural resources, water law, public lands, and environmental and disaster law. In 2014, they wrote the book Mississippi River Tragedies, a century of unnatural disaster. The book focuses on the dramatic transformation of the river over the last century and the precarious positions that human communities have in relationship to it. The results are what they call catastrophic unnatural disasters. Behind all of this, they argue, is a system of law that amplifies American ambivalence towards nature. So, We'll be exploring what they mean by unnatural disasters and what insights they have about how the American legal system creates environmental problems that so many of our environmental policies are trying to solve. It's a pleasure to have both of you in the studio. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Ivana. So to start, I was hoping uh, one of you could describe, um, or both of you could describe, one of the unnatural disasters that you describe in your book.
0: Well, I guess I'll start. One uh, noteworthy natural disaster was the great flood of 1927 that took over a, a huge portion of the lower Mississippi River Valley. And it was a natural flood in the sense that there was an unusually, unseasonably heavy, unrelenting rainfall. But it was an unnatural disaster in the sense that engineers had tried to control the Mississippi River in a way that proved to be disastrous. And that was um, the idea that by building levees only, the river could be constrained and its force would be concentrated and it would scour out a deeper bed, which in turn could hold more floodwaters. Well, after the 1927 flood, the engineers themselves said that the levees' only policy was, quote, the most monumental blunder in engineering history.
2: Let's fast forward then uh, m- many years to an event that's probably far more um fresh in our listeners' minds, and that's the 2005 Hurricane Katrina, well, the 2005 hurricane season, Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, which hit, of course, the Gulf Coast, and particularly Mississippi and uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, quite forcefully. Again, like the 1927 flood, it was a combination of natural hydrological and meteorological events, weather-related events, a hurricane, um, and picking up waters from the Gulf of Mexico and pushing them up onto the land, but also unnatural disasters in that engineers, again, with our love for technology and with structural solutions to so many of our nation's issues, had relied very heavily on levees and pumps to keep—focusing on New Orleans—to keep a city that's below sea level as high and dry as it could possibly be to support all of the floodplain development and all of the tourism and the urban um, development in the city and the commercial development and the residential housing in the city as well. And as we saw in 2005, just as in 1927 and many, many other of these flood and hurricane events in the whole system, the systems, the human systems failed in quite a monumental way, where the pumps failed, the levees failed, the, um, all the pipelines and different navigational channels that had been built in the Gulf of Mexico acted as hurricane superhighway, basically funneling some of those floodwaters directly into the heart of the city of New Orleans, where the damages were so greatly exacerbated from the natural event, the hurricane, by all of these human technological, what we would, call, would have called solutions that really didn't work.
1: So both of you have brought up a lot of these infrastructural changes, levees, pipes, pumps. And so I'm curious, from a landscape perspective, how this river has changed in the last 200 years? I mean, if you were to go back two, 300 years and take a snapshot, um, how would you describe the transformation of the river?
2: Well, we can. Uh Go back to Mark Twain, because you can't really talk about the Mississippi River without talking about Samuel Clemens and some of the great things that he, as Mark Twain said in... uh some of his writings on the Mississippi River, life on the Mississippi being one of them, but several others. He described, prior to the Civil War, going way back, how the river was so unruly and beautiful, but untamed, and it would make these, the most prodigious jumps, cutting new oxbows and cutting new channels and throwing towns, which had once been river towns, into the backwaters. So all of a sudden they were farm waters, high farm towns, high and dry, far from the river itself, where towns that hadn't been on the river all of a sudden overnight would be changing the entire economy and uh, the lifestyle of the people in those communities. And of course, Mark Twain loved it because that's what he loved to write about. It's so much fun, so many metaphors and so many things that you could say about an unruly river of that sort and trying to live on that river. But engineers and communities living on the river didn't really like that so much, the unpredictability of this wild and unruly beast so we went at the river with a vengeance with our technologies and uh, american engineers have more know-how probably than just about any other uh, engineering profession in any other country and we tackled the mississippi with um, the force of an army going into battle basically and it is the army corps of engineers that does most of this work so on the upper river now we have converted the river into a series of navigational locks and dams, basically slack water pools that sit behind a number of of locks that can be raised and lowered to let navigational vessels, commercial vessels, through all the way up to Minneapolis, on down to New Orleans. And in the upper river, that required flooding a lot of the natural rapids and some of the other water features of this river and turning them into locks and dams. And in the lower river, as Christy mentioned when she was talking about the 1927 flood, we have basically straight the river with levees, with a corset of levees all the way from St. Louis down past New Orleans, channelizing it, levying it, dredging it to make it straighter, deeper and more secure for floodplain development. So it looks like a very unnatural construct now, compared to the days when Mark Twain first uh, started writing about it.
1: This is a story I think that is familiar to a lot of us who have studied the transformation of landscapes, especially in the West, um, the Colorado River, the LA River. So I'm hoping you can go into a little bit more detail about what you mean when you say unnatural disaster. What do you think we can gain? Uh, to clarify what we mean when we say natural disaster.
0: Well, I think the real question is, with any flood or hurricane, are we the actors who brought about this change, for better or for worse? Or are we the victims? And the victims of what? Well, of storms, of floods wrought by a punishing God, wrought by uncontrollable nature, or brought by ourselves through our agents, the Army Corps of Engineers and Congress. And I think the benefit of realizing the distinction between changes we brought on, unnatural disasters, is that First of all, we can identify cause and effect, and in some cases where it's helpful, we can affix blame or liability to discourage certain kinds of behaviors in the future. But mostly, most importantly, when we realize that something is an unnatural disaster, it's all about human choice and control. It transforms us from being victims trembling before these uncontrollable forces and realizing we can see what happened, we can learn from our mistakes, and we can do better in the future. So it's from our perspective, I think the idea of unnatural disaster is meant to be liberating and empowering and allowing us to um, do
1: better in the future and make ourselves safer. Something you explore in the book is how the law may amplify ambivalent attitudes towards nature and i just wanted i was just curious what is one of the main ways that that the law does this well to
0: to back up a little bit and just even think about what we meant by amplifying our ambivalent attitudes on the one hand we revere nature and its benefits particularly maybe starting since the 1960s Um, In modern times, when we started valuing conservation lands, wildlife refuges, wetlands protection, um, and we support our floodplain farmers through various policies um, so that we can have fabulous crops growing in some of the best, richest, most incredible soils in the world. So we revere the river and its flooding and what it gives to us and the natural environment. And yet at the same time, we're working feverishly to control it, as um, Sandy just said, how we try and remake the river and make it safe and predictable. And the ways we've done that is essentially we've worked toward creating um, a floodless floodplain, which is really an oxymoron. And we've worked feverishly, as I said, to separate the river from the floodplain. We've held back the sediments that could have gone all the way down to New Orleans and beyond in the delta to help replenish the sinking delta and rebuild the land. Um, We've built behind levees, sometimes even in places designated as floodways. Um, So we've really been at cross purposes with ourselves by design and by mistake. And many of our obstacles, our dangers, are really self-created, and I think in, pa- in part they result from and reflect our ambivalent uh, attitudes toward nature.
2: I'd like to add another um, dimension to that, another, another wrinkle to it. If you go to a number of the river towns, I think New Orleans is a huge exception, but if you were to go to St. Louis, Kansas City, Even Minneapolis, or my hometown, which is actually on the Missouri River, Sioux City, Iowa, the Missouri being the longest tributary of the Mississippi, all all connected, hydrologically speaking. If you were to go to any one of those river towns, certainly 20 or 30 years ago, perhaps slightly less so today, you would have found... A community greatly removed and disconnected from its river. We would build highways and interstates over it. We would build massive bridges with massive pylons to connect one side to another, one state to another. But we didn't really live on and enjoy the river. More recently, you're starting to see communities redevelop their riverfronts and make them part of their livable community, their living space in their community with bike paths and pedestrian ways and green space and parks and much more user-friendly river features, bringing back some of the natural features, but also making it a lot more uh, amenable to pedestrians and bikers and people that want to recreate or picnic or boat on the rivers. But that's a pretty recent phenomenon. For a very long time, river towns Tried, I think, very actively tried to disconnect themselves from the rivers because the rivers had wrought so much damage during floods uh, and hurricanes.
0: And Sandy's remarks reminded me of something that is the ultimate visual ironic symbol of our ambivalent attitudes toward nature, and that is we have levees trying to make the river unnatural, hold it in place, and what do we have on top of many of those levees? bike paths and walking trails because we are pretending or hoping we are in natural nature so we want the levees
1: to be both both natural and unnatural that is such a good point i was just in sacramento where they're pioneering or they're developing a new um bike path for all of these levees and and i hadn't even thought about that that's such a good point point. and i'm curious um you know, you're talking about how this idea of an unnatural disaster is you were intending or en- envisioning it to be this kind of empowering vision or empowering mm-hmm. idea for human um, choice and control. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, to draw some connections here, what that has to do with this changing relationship that you were just talking about, Sandra, this recent reclaiming of the riverfront. Um, how do these two elements interact, what's the relationship there?
2: I think there's several things going on. If you would look back 10, 20, 30 years on many of these levees, you would have found highways. And many of them have been washed away. So our city planners and engineers have gotten smarter. I mean, we have made progress. We have made some progress. And that is, well, let's have some open space. It's a lot easier to rebuild a pedestrian walkway or a park after a flood than it is to replace a whole lot of concrete and infrastructure um so that's i think a piece of it we've started to learn from some of our past mistakes and we've started to engage in more sensible land use but that's only one part of the story i think our attitudes have begun to change toward the natural environment to some extent as well
0: yeah i think that's correct and we we can see even in some of our policies related to flood insurance, the federal flood insurance program that we write about quite a bit in our book, um, some of the things we have tried after a flood is to provide federal um, insurance payments um, not to rebuild, but to evacuate communities and to realize that maybe being in the floodplain isn't the safest and best place to be and to um, backtrack a bit from perhaps some of the uh, steps
1: we have taken in the past. You know, that's um, quite a taboo sort of idea, especially here in Connecticut and New York. Um, just, you know, because these these places have experienced such devastating impacts, and yet this community desire to endure um, and lift up the houses is, is so strong. Um, so, I'm curious if this... Um, whole issue, this whole story around the Mississippi River, if this is an isolated situation, or if you can think of and describe other situations where this this dynamic has also been at play, where the, the law has basically codified this ambivalence.
2: Well, you mentioned Sacramento, so I think it's pretty clear that the Mississippi River Basin is by no means an isolated example. The three lessons that I think we pull out of the book that are true of all coastal areas and pretty much all rivers in North America, perhaps around the world, is that rivers will flood That's part of their lifeblood. The sediments and the interchange of materials and energy between the floodplain itself, the riparian areas, the vegetation, the soils, and the water, it's just a natural thing. Without flooding Rivers can't perform many of their ecological functions, and the land surrounding the rivers cannot produce crops, for example, cannot produce floodplain forests and marshes and habitat and all those things. So, rivers will flood. That's what they are. Designed, not by humans, but naturally, that's what they're designed hydrologically to do. And it's part of their lifeblood. So rivers will flood, be they Sacramento or Mississippi or Missouri or uh, the rivers that flooded over here in Hurricane Irene and Superstorm Sandy, for example. Um, second lesson levees will fail. As uh, engineers say, there are two kinds of levees those that have already failed and those that are going to in the not-too-distant future. And that's the American Society for Civil Engineers. So that's not just from a couple of lawyers critiquing the engineers. And the third one is that unwise floodplain development will happen if we let it. And we let it through structural infrastructure like levees and channelization and armoring the banks to protect the floodplain residents. But we also let let it happen through subsidized insurance, particularly flood insurance, uh, and
0: after the fact, disaster relief. Right. And I think those are humane, important impulses, tying into what you said earlier, We, we will come back, we will rebuild, we will be stronger, we will not retreat. And yet it's you know, it's probably the wrong lesson to to take away a maybe false bravado after a, after a disaster. And we've seen it from East Coast to, to West Coast.
1: And I, I get the sense that in so many um, different arenas, we're kind of bumping up against the same um, historic sense of of hubris, um, that if we just put down more concrete and do more engineering, uh, we'll be okay. We can engineer ourselves out of any problem that we come across. Um,
2: It's like Prometheus. If we just steal fire from the gods and give it to the humans, the humans are going to be so much better off because of this new technology. didn't really work out so well for him either.
0: And and yet as a ray of hope, New York City and state, I believe, have been coming up with some plans for um, a kind of green, resilient infrastructure. So they've identified ways they can rebuild or mimic reefs and sandbars and all sorts of things that help tame coastal floods um, so that's the good news the bad news is they've concluded that the existing legal structure probably doesn't allow for few if any of their ideas to take effect as the law now
1: stands wow and another question when you when you were talking about levees and what we've learned about levees that either they Will fail. Either they have failed, have failed, or they will fail. Um, I was thinking about dams, and the conversation around dams is slowly but surely changing. Uh, how smart is it to continuously put dams on rivers? Uh, in your years of teaching and doing research, is this a similar? Do you see a similar lesson that's about to be drawn about dams too?
2: Definitely. I think on the Missouri River is what I'm most intimately familiar with, that Congress authorized the construction of six huge mainstem dams around the 1944 Flood Control Act. And the idea was hold the floodwaters back, open up the river for more navigation, um, protect the downstream communities. And some of these dams are still among the Two of the dams on the upper Missouri River are still among the top 10 largest dams in the entire world. These are gargantuan structures. And during the flood of 2011, just a few years ago, the Corps of Engineers was forced to release a good deal of water from the lowermost dam, uh, Gavin's Point Dam, at the Lewis and Clark Lake, um, to protect the infrastructure, in part, and to prevent more flooding upstream because the precipitation and the snow melt, the runoff that spring, was so immense and went on for so long that the dam, even though it was structurally sound, could not possibly hold back all of those waters. And so many of the downstream communities are now suing the Corps of Engineers for allowing water to be released from that lowermost dam, thereby flooding out their lands in the floodplain on further downstream. So dams are a huge part of the component as well, over on the Missouri River, more so on the Mississippi itself, but yes. And Christy's actually written an article about dams and dam removal.
0: Yes, so there is um, some recognition that some dams have outlived their usefulness, and were built in a different era, and it's time to take them down. Um, We know that dams are one of the main reasons many fish species are threatened or endangered, because the dams block their upstream passage. So one of my favorites, stories concerns the Edwards Dam in Maine, and it was a little dam that was built during the time of Martin Van Buren, and it doesn't really, it did not really continue to fulfill much of its purposes, but it did continue to block the passage of fish to migrate. And so back during the time of Bill Clinton, um, president when during his presidency, it was determined that the Edwards dam would come down. and it was a, a kind of small dam. but it represented the first time ever that um, uh, FERC, the federal a- um, agency that regulates privately owned dams required a dam to be taken down. Um, against its owner's risk, wishes. So there was a bit of political theater, and the Secretary of the Interior, Bruce Babbitt, had a bottle of champagne, and he broke it over the backhoe that breached the Edwards Dam to cheers from the spectators as the water rushed forth. And, you know, it's it's been a happy story in that the um, fishery has returned, and the passage of the fish has uh, come back, and there's a healthy fishery on that uh on that river now. And so there is a recognition that we should undo some of the dams that we, we built in the past.
1: And there's a move to uh, demolish uh, certain dams. We could really be talking about climate disruption as an even larger scale natural disaster or even unnatural disaster. As lawyers and as teachers, how has your thinking about dealing with climate change uh, changed as a result of your work on this book?
0: Well, it's interesting that you used the phrase climate disruption, and that's there's been a lot of talk in the environmental community, what we should call what's happening. At first, we talked about uh, global warming, and then we realized, well, it, it worked in a variety of ways. The climate wasn't just warming. It was also cooling in some places. It was getting wetter in some places, drier in others. And then we've started now more recently talking about climate disruption. And again, it's that idea of a natural versus an unnatural disaster. So if you use the word disruption, it suggests an active interference, which raises the question hmm, interference disrupted by whom? And it eventually probably leads to the answer by us. Um, and so I guess what I've learned, what we've learned thinking about, you know, for example, Um, hurricanes Katrina and Sandy that um, exacerbate ongoing sea level rise and increasing uh, storms and the ferocity of storms. What we've learned is that if we could have a do-over, which perhaps we can in some minor way, it would be better not to build so close to the water, at least not in places where we didn't have to do so for uh, purposes of having ports or shipping or the like. But we don't need to have as we have in my hometown, Walmart built in the floodplain, or Sam's Club or Target. You know, there are places where it's appropriate to develop the floodplain, and places where it's not necessary. So I think what we've, what I've learned, what we've learned is to be judicious in the places where we build in the floodplain, and otherwise to stand back and give
1: nature some space to flood. So shifting gears here uh, a little bit. Um the Ecuadorian Constitution talks about the rights of nature, which essentially expands rights typically reserved for humans uh, to trees, rivers, and non-human animals. Whether this has been an effective way to reconfigure the basic underlying premise of law to conserve nature is a completely different conversation, but I'm curious what sort of changes you both think we need um, in the way that our laws are written. Does our concept of what deserves rights have to be expanded, or should we work with the exi- existing legal framework that we have?
2: Well, I think our concept of private property rights has to be rethought, um, perhaps reformed as well. And many of these ro- reforms would have to come from the judiciary, from the Supreme Court, from Supreme Court precedent. Uh, Christie mentioned earlier that many of the types of changes that progressive thinkers in the Northeast after Superstorm Sandy and Hurricane Irene have wanted to adopt, and this is true on the Louisiana coast and the Mississippi coast and in places like Minnesota as well, where courageous politicians and city officials and county planners have wanted to give the river more room to flood or the coastal areas, more room to flood or to buffer the storm surge of the next hurricane. What stands in the way is private property rights, in many cases. And the United States is quite unique in that we have a Fifth Amendment to our Constitution. And it's it gives private property owners a right to compensation if the government is to take their property, either through condemnation, taking title to it outright, or now, through Supreme Court precedent, through regulatory restrictions that obstruct the uh, economic uses of the property. And I think land use planners in particular, at the state, local, um, city, township level, are particularly fearful of, takings claims being brought against them and their treasuries. No taxpayer wants to pay for uh, litigation that's gone wrong for a city that's lost to some landowner who claimed that they were restricted from building their Walmart or from building their franchise store, whatever happened to be, in the floodplain, or from rebuilding their house, which has been repeatedly flooded during the course of several decades, say. When the land use officials, when the government officials, whoever may, may they may be, say, no, the first thing that happens, nine times out of 10, is that the landowner will come back and sue for a Fifth Amendment takings, because our concept of private property rights in this country is so strong, almost sacrosanct. Um, one of the reforms that we talk about a little in the book, and that we've talked about between ourselves, and we'll continue to think about and write about, is how can we adjust our thinking about private property to better reflect what in this country and in many common law countries, going all the way back to British and early British and Roman times, they called the public trust doctrine, which says you know some types of properties, some waterways, some fisheries are so imbued with the public interest and the community interest that they're not really full and unfettered, vested property rights in your black acre, you know, in your real estate, for example. But there's something a little bit unique. So how can we better think of property rights to reflect the public trust doctrine, Aldo um, Leopold's land ethic, you know, a broader community of not just your neighbors, your human neighbors, but the ecological neighbors as well, if we could work those concepts into our perception of private property, uh, I think we would have a much better chance of engaging in land use planning that will benefit us and sustain us in the floodplain into the future.
0: And to take off on that topic a little more, it's certainly not the case that Sandy and I don't value private property rights and that we don't realize how critical they are to the American conception of ourselves and to our history. But we can't seem to agree on a consistent view that incorporates all of our modern understandings. So for example, Congress and the judiciary seem to be at odds with the, one another. And these are you know, two branches of government that are defining the parameters of private property rights. So in 1968, Congress enacted the Federal Flood Insurance Program, the National Flood Insurance Program, NFIP. And Congress envisioned that it would, it would subsidize floodplain development where private insurers would not go because there was no money in it. So Congress said, out of kindness, we will subsidize at below market rates flood-prone properties. But as a quid pro quo for that, for local communities to be able to participate in this flood insurance program, there has to be a measure of self-help. Local governments have to do something to to help make themselves less prone to flooding. And so Congress had in mind land use regulations, that local governments would require setbacks, perhaps from rivers or the coast, or local governments would require elevation of, building, of buildings. But no sooner had Congress passed that in 1968 than within a decade or two, which is pretty immediate in terms of uh, litigation that goes before the US Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court started becoming very active in this area of regulatory takings. And in one of the landmark cases, Lucas versus South Carolina Coastal Council, the court determined that South Carolina's land use regulations, just like Congress had in mind, a little bit of a setback along the coast, was a taking of the landowner's property. And in particular, the court fashioned a new rule when there had been a total taking, and property was rendered valueless by government regulation. And I think the court's view that land oceanfront property is valueless, represents a pretty narrow human-centered view of what value is. And I think since that time, there's been a little pushback through the, the, um, the uh, study of ecosystem services, for example, to find the very real market value, dollar and cents value that's provided to humans by lands that are undeveloped. And those lands can protect us from water pollution, from floods, and they can do millions of dollars' worth of protection. And so in a very real sense, if someone develops those lands, they are taking that protection from the rest of us. So we have this unsettled view of exactly what is
1: value uh, and a valuable use of property. Sandra, you were talking about um, how you how you might like to see uh, this whole concept of private property potentially change moving forward, maybe having less of an emphasis or national sort of obsession with the idea. Do you see any alternative interpretations of that happening in the courts or any, any juncture in the legal system?
2: Well, it seems like some of the state Supreme Courts have been far more willing to entertain arguments based on, for example, the public trust doctrine, that there is such a thing as a public interest in navigable waters and the submerged lands underlying them and in ecologically functioning floodplains and in the fisheries that those floodplains support. Um, Wisconsin, uh, Rhode Island, to some extent California, All of these states, Hawaii certainly is a leader in this as well, have begun to recognize that the public trust doctrine can actually be an inherent constraint, not something that's imposed externally by some local government official, but something that was part and parcel of your title in the floodplain or in a coastal area in the first place, because it was always impressed with this sort of pre-constitutional, pre-existing notion of the public trust. And since that's the case, it's not that the government is taking anything from you landowner when it says no you can't build that walmart because it's going to destroy all the public trust values of this particular property that was a part of your title of that very unique property to begin with so some of the state courts i think have been quite progressive both in recognizing the public trust doctrine as a as a consideration, if not an outright limitation on, for example, the use of water, uh, the allocation of water rights, and also the use of land, fewer courts have really strung together that notion of the public trust doctrine with the takings doctrine. How does the public trust doctrine, this inherent part of your title as a floodplain or coastal owner, how does it impact your claims when you go forth under the Fifth Amendment? And there's only been a few Courts to consider that again, arguments are more favorably received on behalf of sort of the community and the ecosystem in the state court system than in the federal circuit, which is what hears federal takings claims uh, against the United States and against uh, other government governments as well. In the federal court system, Um, the federal circuit has very much pushed back on this whole notion and viewed property, as Christie had mentioned, as private, sacrosanct, I- any sort of limitation would render it valueless in the sense that the government must pay. So we've kind of got the split going on that I'm seeing developing between the state court system and the federal court system. With the states, which might sound a little bit surprising, but with the states taking a more progressive leading approach.
1: This is making me think. So um, Professor Dan Esty here at the Yale Law School is always talking about the increasing role that states, cities, and local municipalities have in taking the lead on climate change. I mean, historically, conventionally, we've had a big emphasis on um, big government solutions and international treaties to get anything done. And he's saying, we should really be thinking about this from a bottom-up type jurisdictional perspective. And what you're saying about states taking this role in reinterpreting, possibly reinterpreting, what it is to have a private property right. I don't know if the, these two things are related at all, but to me it kind of calls on this idea that states really could have play a big role in helping us deal with local um, impacts of climate change.
2: Well, in some some sense, yes, and then I want to turn it over to, to Christy, but... Uh, your property right is a creature of state law, and the Supreme Court has said this on multiple occasions. So whatever is inherent in your title as a private property owner varies from state to state. So if you're in California, Hawaii, uh, perhaps Wisconsin, Rhode Island, your state might have a much broader view of the public trust, and, then, and hence a different perspective of your bundle of sticks in your property rights uh, as a landowner. And that's always been the case. States define property rights, state by state, very individualistically. And we're seeing that um, in the takings arena as well, because the two go hand in hand together. What is your property right? Did you have a property right? Only if you had a property right can you claim that it was taken in a way that would be compensable. So I think it's only natural in this particular context that the states are taking the lead and are developing their own unique bodies of property law in a way that perhaps the federal government is a little slower to adapt to. I'll
0: just uh, point out, as an aside, there was a very um, influential article in the Yale Law Review quite some time ago called Givings uh, by Bell and Parchimovsky. And the idea of that article is that the government gives as well as takes. So for example, in the Lucas case, the piece of land was on a barrier island that could not have been developed but for the government paying to build a bridge to that barrier island, and could not have been sustained but for the government paying to renourish the beaches and keep what would have been a migrating barrier island in place so that that property could be enjoyed. So the idea is, if we are going to say that anything that people do um, has to be accounted for, then we should have a full accounting. And we should look at things the government does to help private landowners make even more use of their property. And we should counterbalance that against things that the government might do that restricts what private landowners can do with their property.
1: So just to to conclude our conversation, I'm curious, in sum, what do you think the lesson is that that the story of the Mississippi River teaches us, based on your extensive research in your book? The million-dollar question? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well,
2: one, one piece of it absolutely has to be give rivers room to flood, and more broadly, give natural features of our ecosystems room to function in the way that they would function hydrologically, geologically, um, and so forth. Sometimes we need to use our technologies much more sparingly, and always we need to use them much more strategically, I think.
0: And I think there's also a big lesson of humility. And that is to realize that what we think and what we know now is not what the next generation will think and what they will know. So, for example, nature is always changing. Rivers move, seas rise, and human society is always changing. For example, we um, rebuilt our rivers back in the 18th and uh, 19th and 20th centuries when our engineering prowess outpaced our understanding of natural systems and the benefits they provided. So I think it's easier said than done, but I think we need to be, Nimble, be willing to reevaluate what we've done and see what works and what doesn't work, and to learn from our mistakes with some degree of humility. And as I said, it's easier said than done, but really, that's the challenge for us if we want to stop working against ourselves by magnifying natural storms and floods and
1: transforming them into unnatural disasters. Thank you both. It's been such a pleasure talking with you both, and um Yeah, so thank you. Thank you. We've
2: really enjoyed this. Our pleasure. Thank you, Ivana.